0: Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon, with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Matters. Today on Sagittarian Matters, advice on writing, sex moves, negotiating, and how to deal with horror jerks with writer and feminist porn star Lorelai Lee. Stay tuned. Lorelai Lee is an actor, screenwriter, and activist who has been starring in adult films since she was 19 years old. I met Lorelai on a writing retreat in Akumal, Mexico, several years ago where we got to watch baby sea turtles get born and crawl out to the sea, if you can believe that. She currently writes an advice column called Ask Lorelai, Advice from a Feminist Porn Star for Taboo, and you can find it on Medium. You can find Lorelai herself on Twitter, at Miss Lorelei Lee. Welcome to the podcast. Thank
1: you. It's so
0: great to be on
1: your podcast.
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's it's great to have you here. My producer, is she's doing something else over there. She's doing something technical.
1: Yeah, I'm sure she has a lot to do.
0: She has a lot on her plate. She's getting the levels right. She's in the booth right now. She's like, turn that up. Turn this down. Um, she seems
1: like an excellent producer.
0: So you and I know each other since we met on a writer's yeah. retreat
1: yeah and you know what I was thinking about is that this might be like the five-year anniversary of the last time you interviewed me
0: I think so Oh well is the thing I interviewed you about last time still prevalent? yes because we actually because we have an advice question about it and I was like oh this is the exact same thing that we were talking about five years ago
1: I know isn't that crazy
0: but we'll get to that yeah I'll call that a teaser okay <laughs> But, um, so we were in Mexico and we were writing, I was working on terrible edits, I think for calling Dr. Laura. Now I'm working on edits for fetch, which is my next graphic novel.
1: Very exciting.
0: What were you writing when you were there?
1: I was working on a two things. One was a novel and the other was a book of poems which I have since finished the book of poems, uh, but not the novel. The novel's been put aside for now
0: Mm.
1: in favor of memoir writing. Oh, really? Yes. Oh,
0: that's so exciting.
1: Uh, Yeah, exciting and scary, as I'm sure you know plenty about.
0: Oh, that makes me so glad that we have a memoir question then. Yeah, good. (laughs) It's both exciting and scary. You have a new advice column. I
1: do. It's only a few months old and I am answering people's questions about sex and bodies and relationships.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where is it?
1: So I'm writing for, actually, this is funny. It's a magazine. That's an app, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: two women from Stanford who were roommates. Uh, they went to Stanford and they were roommates at Stanford and they, uh, noticed that there is, a real lack of good sex ed out there uh, for young people, but really for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, So they, they created this app and I believe that their angle is that it is sex ed for millennials. Okay. okay. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Although I really think that it is useful for lots and lots of kinds of people.
0: Yeah. I, whenever I hear, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like, um, like an old wizened person. So I'm like, I get it sex. I get it. But uh-huh. um, whenever I'm listening to a podcast or reading something that's people's questions about sex, sometimes there's angles or things that I hadn't, that I would never even think about because it's yeah. not my thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like when straight right.
0: people write into savage love and then you read yeah. your, their questions, and you're like, whoa,
1: <laughs> who knew that was even <laughs> something people thought about or did.
0: Yeah. Like, there's so many things. I'm like, there's just so much to know.
1: There is. So no, that's true. It is a big world of sex out there.
0: Is there a theme to the questions so far?
1: Yeah, you know, and I, it's interesting. These questions have this theme, but also in general, for 10 years, I've been getting questions from people or more, I am um, used to volunteer at Spiys San Francisco Sex Information, mm-hmm. uh, and they do a sex educator training program which I went through and then um, give anonymous non-judgmental uh, sex advice online and with a hotline. And so I got a lot of questions there. I get people's emails. It's so much of am I normal? am I is this thing about me strange? this thing that I desire? Is it weird? So much of just am I normal yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's a funny question to answer because um, what what do they mean by normal? Do they want to know that what they are doing is the same thing that the average person out there is doing or the majority of people are doing? And then, why is that important? Why would that be important? But I actually think, for most people, when they ask those kinds of questions, I think they have a lot of fear about being rejected by a specific other. That's not, you know, not that they, yeah, need to be the same as everybody else, but that they are worried about the one or two or five people that they want to be interested in them.
0: I've thought. It, I think, yeah. That kind of thing for me would stem from like, am I going to stick out this person who I have a crush on (laughs) by saying it out loud? Can I say it to you and you tell me like, do I just need to like go to like an island for eunuchs or something or? Right. Totally. I mean, and the fact
1: is that everybody is weird. Like we're all super weird (laughs) in ways that we just don't talk about you know I mean that's it's not actually weird it's just that we don't talk about all the things we think are weird yeah I don't know contribute like sharing our own weirdnesses I think contributes to a a world where people will stop asking that question so much hopefully
0: yeah yeah do you have other advice columns that you're a fan of
1: you know I've definitely read Dan Savage and um had uh, liked some of it and disliked some of it, and um there I used to read the advice columns in the Guardian uh, the SF Guardian. Mm-hmm. uh Annalie Newitz, I think was wrote sort of like a geeky tech sex advice column or something. Mm-hmm. I think I might be getting this wrong, but I used to read, yeah, a few of those and like them, but I haven't read any lately. I don't know of any, yeah, recent ones. Oh, of course, though, Dear Abby's pretty
0: great. Oh, yeah. I haven't read Dear Abby for a long time since, you know, it was like my heyday for advice was when I worked at a coffee shop where we got a newspaper every day. And so oh, then yeah. I could read, I was so excited to read Dear Abby and Ann Landers yes. together. And then they got replaced by Carolyn Hacks, who was a little too no-nonsense for me.
1: She yeah, I, I don't like it when people are... um super judgy or more direct than they need to be, maybe, or I don't know. There's just no sense in judging people who you're giving advice to.
0: No, oh, and I mean, they're not they're They may not answer your, or do your advice in the first place, but then if you sound, you know, very stern or judgmental to them, they might even put it in a drawer even more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, and that is another thing I think that is really, um, tough about writing an advice column is that sometimes I want to be like, this is my advice, but also ask lots of people. <laughs> you know, it's, it feels like a big responsibility. And it also feels like I shouldn't be the only source for some of these questions, especially the bigger questions.
0: Well, that's the crazy thing when I'm listening, you know, I like all kinds of advice. So even like right wing misogyny like just anyone any advice i love it so then you hear i'll be listening to like dr drew or something who's Uh quite you know a huge grain of salt with him but people will call and it's a question they obviously need to go to the doctor like yesterday
2: yeah they'll be
0: like my dick fell off what do you think dr drew (laughs) you know know, it'll be like i've had this thing lodged in this part of my body for a pretty long time and it's starting to smell Uh and turn black like what do you think Oh, God. Oh God. <laughs> and you're like, I, I'm i not a doctor, but I'm going to tell you what. Go to the doctor. And they're like, they're like, they don't want to hear that. They're like, no, no, no. Can I just, is there an herb or something?
1: Just put it in some bleach or <laughs> say a prayer over it.
0: When I started doing one for bitch, I was getting a lot more questions from straight women. Whereas before uh-huh. I had done it for many queer people. And the questions yeah. were very different. Um, yeah. I don't know if I had a dream question that I wanted people to ask. I liked manners questions a lot. Like manners. But the straight women had lots of questions about how to retain their feminism or themselves while in relation to men, be it like their family members or their boyfriends. Like people were like, my boyfriend and I split the bill because I want to like show that I'm empowered. But then someone gave us a weird look. Should I be weirded out by that? Or like, how do I maintain my feminist whatever while still having a man that wants to buy something for me? And I was like, I mean, I... I have such a different perspective than them that's not very popular, but I was like, maybe chivalry is like the payment you get back for living in a patriarchal world. I don't know. (laughs) Like, maybe that guy (laughs) should pay for you. Maybe that guy should hold the door open for you.
1: Yeah, well, and maybe an individual act of manners or generosity has nothing to do with your feminism. I mean, (laughs) yeah. It's such a, it's so funny um, the ways that people. Think about what feminism is or how it's enacted in the world uh, and I really think like it's so um it's so not productive sometimes to think about like the to try to put these questions under this lens of correct feminism or incorrect feminism you know of like who pays the bill or yeah. you know when they're when uh, to me the the questions that are really important uh, to think about through a feminist lens are like who, you know, how much, obviously, how much you get paid for equal work, those kinds of larger societal questions that I, I do think that the personal is political, right? And maybe if you had a conversation with someone in which they said, you know, well, I am going to pay for this because I'm male. And that's my privilege as a male or something, right? You might have a conversation about like how they think about paying for the bill, but just letting someone pay for the bill is not, does nothing for your feminism or no the world in general. I don't know.
0: There are so many other things you could do that are feminist acts.
1: Yeah. And being
0: like, no, my card, no, my card, you know?
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Split it right down the middle, please. I guess that's the thing.
1: Like you saying, "I'm going to pay half the bill" doesn't change anything. If if he's paying because he thinks it's uh, the male's place to pay for things, you paying for half the bill doesn't change that. You know, having a larger conversation about it might might have a, some kind of effect, but
0: bigger effect than you insisting on going Dutch all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then I think another piece of it is this idea that like we're responsible for our oppressions
0: oh god
1: you know that really is frustrating where women are like what personal choices can i make in my life to stop the patriarchy but more they're thinking about like personal choices like what clothes i'm wearing or where i walk down the street I mean, actually, where I walk down the street can have an effect on patriarchy (laughs) or what what time of day I walk down the street, you know, or who I do it with. But but it's but I think that it is counterproductive to take on the responsibility oftentimes of thinking that you are the only one who can change it, like through your personal actions.
0: It's So punishing, Um, it's so Catholic. Yeah, it is. Okay, this is a little bit of a segue but I want to ask you: What do you? You get trolled on Twitter. We're Twitter yeah. friends. How do you deal? Um, like, do you have some kind of like slogan or motto or thing that you do or self care thing that you do to not let trolls interrupt your personal bubble of happiness?
1: It's really hard. Uh, I let it affect me more than I want it to, mm-hmm. for sure. And I, I block (laughs) on Twitter. I just block everybody. I just, as soon as somebody says something that like, I, people think, oh, I'm going to start a debate with this feminist whore or whatever, you know, and I'm not, I'm not interested in starting a debate with anyone on Twitter ever. And I will block that person, even if they haven't directly insulted me, because usually, the way that they want to challenge an idea that I've written about is directly insulting already because it's dismissive of anyone who would have that idea that trans people are people or that porn can be feminist or, you know, any of these things. Um, The other thing I do is turn it off a, a lot. You know, I delete Twitter from my phone pretty frequently.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. For periods of time. Um, and then the third thing that I do is I ask my followers to send me animal pictures.
0: Oh yeah. Well, cause
1: that can really undo a lot of psychic damage.
0: Ponyo is really happy to model for any of those things. That's so, cause there's so many yeah. people that actually love you on there that are not vocal as vocal as these trolley people. I know it's funny. We don't
1: write to each other on the internet. Maybe enough to say, hey, you're cool. (laughs) You know, or I really like what you're doing. I do get those messages, but not with the same frequency, I think. Or maybe not with the same energy.
0: (laughs) It's not the same enthusiasm. (laughs) Yeah. Is like a really smart guy who just really wants to tell you something incredible <laughs> oh my god
1: i was <laughs> tweeting you know because my advice column for august was about vaginas yeah um a series of questions on vaginas and was tweeting with a co-worker of mine about lube that irritates our vaginas we're talking about coconut oil specifically which mm-hmm. is like all the rage these days people mm-hmm. are like it's natural it's so great i don't like it it's kind of you know doesn't really work for me mm-hmm. and we were tweeting about that hey yeah it, it irritates my vagina it irritates my vagina too and some <laughs> guy was like hey girls coconut oil has zero side effects <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much cool well, <laughs> oh my god you're so lucky well actually
1: coconut oil has no side effects
0: like
1: thank you thank you thank you <laughs> I mean, mansplaining my vagina to me is really just the height of...
0: That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it just feels... Hey, girls. I hey, yeah. girls. Let me just step in here for a second. You know, that's interesting about coconut oil because I have never used it, but I do sometimes, you know, like you look at... You don't have anything and you look at the kitchen and you're like, all right. Yeah. Let's go right. there, you know. Right. So then yeah. I'm like, coconut oil, why not? <laughs>
1: And I mean, I think the problem with going to the kitchen is that a lot of the things in the kitchen that seem natural really will will bother people's genitals. Um, And you won't know until you've tried
0: it. I might just be totally tripping because I'm thinking of like having used almond oil before and been like, that's a natural oil. Then, you know, I'm like well, why not olive oil or canola? Oil? Like I just, now I just feel like it, like it's starting to sound like a potluck is happening and I'm like trying yeah. everything. I'm like, yeah. why not Dijon mustard? It's wet.
1: You know, <laughs> it's slippery. <laughs> I don't know. In that situation, it might be better just to work <laughs> up some spit. <laughs> yeah.
0: You're listening to Sagittarian Matters with Nicole Georges.
2: Hey, Nicole. I've been dating my girlfriend for about a year and a half, and she's much more social than I am. Um, We end up hanging out with her friends probably two or three times a week, which is great, except for one of her friends uh, consistently makes passive-aggressive comments about my job. I'm a stripper. Um, Or just rude comments about sex work in general. And I don't know how to handle that. I don't know if I should just not go when everybody's hanging out. Or if I should address it directly, no one else is stepping in. Um, It's a longtime person in this group of friends, and they all basically just accept that without some sort of major intervention, she's not going to change her behavior. So any advice from you about what I can do to get through this without looking like a total bitch myself, but also without being a doormat would be great. Thanks so much.
1: Uh, It sucks. It's the worst, man. and. I I say in those situations, if you know that you're the only sex worker in the room, you can protect yourself in whatever way feels best to you. Like, don't worry about what other people think of you. If you feel like the best way to protect yourself in that situation is to not say anything, that's totally okay. You don't have to be the only sex worker in a room full of non-sex workers explaining to them why those comments are not okay. Like, if that's just going to create more pain for you, you don't have to put yourself in that situation.
0: It seems like unfortunate um, that this is this person's girlfriend's friend group. Yeah. Because I would be yeah. like, how about, I'm going to hang out with you. When you want to just have one-on-one time with me or, like, these nice friends, let me know.
1: Yeah, and I would say to my girlfriend, if that, you know, if that is a friend who is valuable to them, like, they, your girlfriend can also step up and say something. You know, if you um, have had one-on-one, because oftentimes these conversations, right, about um, – whore phobia and shame that is heaped upon us, um, they're more productive in a one-on-one uh, situation anyway. So, and if you are dating someone who's important to you, who is not standing up to those comments, like you might ask that person why they don't feel the need to say anything in that situation. Yeah. You know, it, it's to- i think in that since that person if is only your girlfriend's friend and not someone that you are hanging out with on a one-on-one um you know basis it's totally okay to pass that responsibility off uh it's also okay to not hang out you know <laughs> um and it's also okay to be a bitch like it's also, okay, if you feel like the thing that's going to make you feel better is to stand up to that person and to just lay some facts down on a room full of people who are just listening to that shit, like, more power to you. I'll, I'm that person sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: <laughs> it depends on the circumstance. And especially if I'm really fed up with it, if it's been going on for a long time, I have no qualms about standing up to a room full of people and being like you know what that's bullshit even it just even sometimes if I'm too angry to be articulate and I'm just like that is bullshit and you need to stop speaking that way in front of me you know?
0: that's so good and then you're like I'm dropping the mic goodbye
1: yeah and then I walk out of the room immediately I'm like okay now I can't handle this anymore <laughs> Walk on your <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I think 17 other things I wish I had said. And then sometimes I write an article about it.
0: That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really valuable because I, I, I walk around with like a certain like bitch phobia, like worrying, like, Oh, you know, cause I have like a tone and you know, I've been called a bitch. And so I just internalize, like, don't be a bitch, don't be a bitch. But sometimes it's appropriate and it's self-protection and Okay.
1: And powerful women are always called bitches. I mean, that's just always the way.
2: Yeah. Probably, so, yeah. You
1: know, let's 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 take it back. I'm bitch on. I'm, yeah. I'm
0: ready. <laughs> Wait, I have a question for you from me to you. Are you good at negotiating? Yes. Do you have tips because somebody just told I me that they, they were like, take a straight guy out to pizza and ask him how he negotiates. But I want to yeah.
1: Yeah. I've heard a lot of this idea, but here's the thing. Not all straight guys are good at negotiating. People think like, oh yeah, straight white guys, they have so much entitlement. They must be really good at asking for things for themselves. That's not always true. And so you have to pick the right person (laughs) if you're going to go that route. But um, my advice is two things. One, is to decide how much you want to do the thing that you're asking to be paid for. I mean, usually when we're talking, negotiating, we're talking about being paid for something. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other forms of negotiation too, of course, um, like setting boundaries and relationships and that kind of thing, which I think is a different, uh, pile of advice. But when you're asking for money, it's like really important for you to know how much your work is worth to you. Like, if you are broke and you're like, I don't know, I would do this for 75 bucks, but I'd really like 500. You need to know that in your mind so that when you are doing the negotiating, like you know what your bottom price is. You know that you're going to be totally comfortable just getting 75 bucks for it, right? Or if you are like, well, I guess I would, you know, I know they're going to want me to do this for $75, but I really will feel shitty at the end of the day if I take $75 for this you got to know that also. So going into it, like you don't want to end up at the end in a situation where you feel bad. And that is the thing that has like improved my negotiating so much Mm -hmm. is just knowing, no, it's okay to just say no, if they're going to lowball me.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and then the other piece of advice that I have is to, if you are asking for a number that feels really comfortable to you, you're not asking for enough. Because if they, uh, like, you know the value of your work, you know what you can get paid for your work, and probably there's a number you've been paid before, and you're like, okay, this is probably what they'll pay me. That's not enough. You know, they are going to, that's what they want you to do, because then they're also going to try to undercut that number, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) So go in there asking for a number that makes you feel a little sick to your stomach, (laughs) and that should be your starting point.
0: I like, Tara Perkins told me, she was like, as as much as you can ask for with a straight face. Yeah. I love that. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, knowing how to have a straight face about it too, like just how to be cold as nails, just go in there and be ruthless. Be like, don't be nice. You know, they can be your friend that you're negotiating with and you can be friends afterward and you can totally smile when the deal is done. (laughs) But, but and and part of not being nice is not equivocating. Like, don't explain why you're asking for that number unless they ask.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: if they ask, it's good to have two or three brief points about why you're totally worth that much, right? But not a paragraph. Mm-hmm. You don't. If you are worth that much, you don't need to explain.
0: You I, know what I'm, I feel like that's a similar <laughs> advice to like when you make a boundary when you explain the boundary, you're starting to make it weaker. Yeah. Like you're putting holes in it.
1: Yeah. And I think when we talk about boundary setting, there is a, there is a similar thing there, which is that, especially if you're setting boundaries with someone for the first time, oftentimes setting them stricter than you're actually comfortable with is a good idea. uh, You know, for a similar reason, because that person might try to push on your boundaries and you don't want them to push you to a point where you feel shitty at the end of the day.
0: Mm-hmm. This is very valuable advice. I also, you know, something I have to get better at for negotiating is being comfortable with the silence.
1: Yes, and exactly. Comfortable
0: silence.
1: Exactly.
0: So like if we were talking and I was like $500. <laughs> and then you left silence. I'd be like, oh, on, I'll take, I'll take $5. Just give me $5. Yeah. I'll do it for free. I'll pay you. I'll pay you. Like I just...
1: Yeah, yeah, and then the uh, yeah. I mean, do you think if you want advice in negotiating, maybe not asking a straight white man, but asking a sex worker who's been doing it for a long time is a really good way to go. This
0: is a good way to go. Well, I just I thought of it today because I got that advice about a straight man the other day, and I was like, I bet Lorelai has really good business advice (laughs) because you negotiate things all the time because you're in all kinds of different roles. Yeah. And your work. Yeah, it's true. And so I was like, I bet that she's really good at negotiating. Hey, Nicole. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I had a question for Lorelei. I was just curious for those of us non-professionals out there, if there were any don't-try-this-at-home moves that look better on screen than they are fun, actually, in person. Thanks a lot. Look forward to hearing your answer.
1: Yeah. Um I love this question. I I think that most of what is done on screen like in porn movies is not like the you don't want to mimic exactly. Like you almost never want to mimic exactly what you see on screen because everything we're doing is to create a show. So if you're at home and you're like with three people or you're like masturbating for your partner and there is an audience there who you want to perform for, yes, by all means, imitate pornography. But if you are trying to get the most pleasure out of what you're doing or trying to give the most pleasure, do not imitate anything, nothing, not even a single thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not one thing. Not one thing. (laughs) I mean,
1: you know, maybe some little things, but don't do them the same way. Like, you know, that's the thing. If you're going to try something that you saw important, like a specific sex act or a specific position, the best way to do it well is like you could have maybe you watched something and you got the idea there, but then forget where you got the idea And be in the moment with the person that you're with and be okay with it not being perfect. When you try something for the first time, be okay with talking about it with your partner, you know, or paying attention to their face or their non vocal cues. (laughs) So you can tell whether they're getting pleasure or be vocal about whether you're getting pleasure or not, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: So that's,
0: yeah. (laughs) That's good advice. Thanks. you traveled a lot.
1: Yeah, I do. When
0: I met you, you were traveling a lot, a lot. Cause you were in grad school.
1: Yes, I I've, was. I was flying every week. Yeah.
0: I've been traveling a lot and I find it very draining and a little bit traumatic. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering if you have any travel tips or things you do to make you feel sane or grounded or at home, wherever you are.
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, trying to keep it short, but, um, Like, because there are a million things, you know, there's a million things that I do and there's all the things that every travel book will tell you, like drink lots of water on an airplane. Um, but for me, it's all about being organized and I'm not an organized person at all, but I know that about myself. So I will give myself like two hours to pack my suitcase (laughs) Because it makes all the difference, especially because when I travel, I'm not going for vacation. I'm usually going to be working. Mm-hmm. And so there are certain things I know I need when I start my day. The same way that when you work a nine to five job, you're going to have your bag that you know you're going to take to work every day and you know what things you are going to put in it. If you're traveling regularly for work, it should be kind of a similar situation that you have a basic list of things you know you're going to need and giving yourself enough time and preparation to know that you're going to have everything when you get there, you know, and beyond that, there's a hundred little little things about uh, time zones and all those things. I mean, you said you're a person who likes to have a practice Mm -hmm. when it comes to writing. I mean, I think that's kind of thinking about what that means when you're on the road, having a practice for traveling for, keeping yourself sane, you know, this is a silly little thing, but I like to light candles in hotel rooms. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or I know that when I get there, I need a bath right away. Mm -hmm. Um, Little rituals like that, that are going to, you know, help you maintain your sense of sanity. And then the last thing that I think is really important is not to overschedule yourself.
0: Yeah. And don't let anyone else overschedule you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because so often when you're flying to another city, there are people you know there who want to see you. And sometimes I don't tell the internet where I'm going, you know, because I just don't have time. Yeah. Except for all of my best friends out there, I see you every time I come to your city.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree that's like somebody just, they're like, you need a lot of spaciousness in between things. And it's true. Yeah. And when I go visit places, the so people are like, how's your trip? Like, I'm. Um, I'm not, I'm, I mean, just to, like have a reality TV. I'm just like, I'm not here to make friends. Like I'm, I'm here for work. Yeah. So at the time when I'm not working, I'm doing like weird self-care to make myself feel grounded. I can't be driving around the city to or taking Ubers or taxis. They're all around the city to go yeah. see people, even though I love them. Cause or I'm, even
1: staying up late sometimes.
0: Yeah, No. Which yeah. it's nice. I bring Ponyo with me when I travel and she is a really nice, nice touchstone of like routine yeah. and stability and familiarity.
1: Totally, I love when I bring my dog with me. It helps so much.
0: You killed me when I was like, Lorelai. I think it's so weird that Ponyo is like the only person who's been there to see everything I've seen for the past three years. And then you were like, "But you get to witness her life." And I was like, oh. "Yeah." <laughs> I that I, died. I just, know. Getting to witness Ponyo's beautiful life.
1: Yeah, I know. It's so. <laughs> Special. Really, it's such a special thing.
0: She just, she came from the streets and now she gets to live this very charmed, very yeah. charmed, like tote bag dog life.
1: Yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. Does uh, Panyo have any street habits?
0: Oh, things that she learned in Merced that she's <laughs> bringing here? Yeah. Does she have any street habits? I mean, she, she's weird. She will... If a straight man doesn't pet her, uh-huh. she will chase after him and bite his pant leg. Whoa. And it's mostly straight men. It's like something about that vibe. Straight guy walks by, isn't giving her the time of day. She yeah. will grab his pant leg and do that. She doesn't really do any other kind of like hoardy, kind of like growling at you while she's eating things. Um, yeah, yeah. But that is the weirdest thing to me because I'm used to dogs that don't want to be pet. Yeah. And so then her being like, you will pet me. And then they don't. And then she gets,
1: especially small dogs. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah.
0: That's what about your dog?
1: No, no street habits at all. It makes me think that he lied. Like he just like wandered into the street for about five seconds before animal care and control picked him up because he would run into traffic. He would go home with anybody. Like, I don't know. But you did remind me of a funny thing, which is that he does love effeminate gay men and also really femme women, especially if they're wearing high heels. I can't tell if he liked those things before we started hanging out or if that is developed after his time with me.
0: I can see hanging out with you being a thing that would make me have positive associations between both of those. Kinds
1: of people. If, if he sees like a group of women in high heels in the street, especially if they're like giggling and talking really high pitched, he will run up to them. Wow. Oh my god, he gets so excited. I mean, he has also spent a lot of time in the makeup room at the porn studio, mm-hmm. being pet by many performers who exclaim over him in high pitched voices. So maybe that's where that came from.
0: tanya does. The, your my version of that is that Panyo loves cartoonists, like almost yeah. all cartoonists. She will be an emotional support dog. Like she's met all my students, and it'll be like groups of people that are in grad school that are away from their pets, and so they're so happy to see her. So maybe yeah. like pale slouched people with like weird looking <laughs> hands. She loves them the way that your dog <laughs> loves beautiful women in high heels who are giggling. like Panyo is like sees someone who looks like crumb and she gets <laughs> really excited.
1: It's awesome.
0: Yeah. Our next question. Yeah. How do you navigate making time to devote to your writing practice?
1: Oh, boy. Well, this is a really hard one um, because, I mean, I have a lot of answers. One answer is, the biggest answer is that really, if you want to prioritize your writing practice, you know, you can get a job that allows you to write you can actually make writing you know the priority of your life for me sex work does that um for other people if you write if you best write in the morning you know work night shifts <laughs> if you uh know that you want to be surrounded by books some people work in bookstores right where they that aren't very busy Of course that kind of thing also means committing yourself to sometimes a lower income level. Um, those are the big answers, right? That you can actually structure your entire life around and, uh, making writing a priority. Um, of course I know that people who want to write also often want to do a lot of other things and there is no answer to this question except to just make the time, you know, so. And to know yourself. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So like, (laughs) like for me, I know that if I say I'm going to get up at 7 a.m. every day and write for two hours and then go to the gym, like that's just never going to happen. I am not going to get up early to do it. (laughs) I'm going to do it like for three days and then I'm going to be like, this sucks. I'm going to sleep in, Mm -hmm. you know. So
0: you know your own kind of clock, your own
2: rhythm.
1: Yeah. Knowing your clock, knowing what works for you and what doesn't, knowing that, um, that no matter what guru you turn to, like they, their advice just might not work for you. And also knowing what writing tropes work against your writing practice. Like, you know, the traditional one or the one that, um, people grow up with a lot is this idea that writers have crazy lives and drink a lot and smoke cigarettes all night and then they just write in a fit of inspiration at three in the morning. Um, that doesn't work for me. Me (laughs) That, yeah, I think that can be really counterproductive Mm
0: -hmm.
1: for a lot of people.
0: I can't, I have to, I mean, I do have to have a practice. Yeah. You know, I cannot, I do not wait for inspiration to strike. It's exciting when it does, but that's not, you know, I have to just sit down and do stuff and maybe I won't love all of it. Maybe it won't all see the light of day, but I was still doing it because I'm a writer and that's what I do. I got to write. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that is also a thing that um, is hard for people is sitting in front of, sitting in front of your work when you don't know how to start or return to it, Yeah. you know, just knowing that if you um, sit there long enough. You have to,
0: you have to do it. (laughs) Even if you write about, you're like, I can't believe this is so stupid. And this chair is hurting my butt. And like, here I am. And this is, I mean, like, I just found a diary entry from the other day. That was so funny. That was like, I am listening to the sound of the oil heater and the dog in the backyard. I'm wearing a giant pad. I'm super (laughs) angry because seven people aren't texting me back at the same time. And at the time that felt like nothing that felt like I'm just writing to write. But looking back, it's so funny and weird. To think yeah, about. like it's such a specific moment, specific place and time, season, cycle, yeah. moment, everything. Yeah,
1: and also. The fact that you're including those specific details, which is what we talk about all the time in writing class, right? Yeah. But you're wearing a giant pad and there are seven people who you want to text you back. Like, <laughs> there's not five people, there's seven people. That's really yeah. specific.
0: Yeah. And so, it's not just like I'm being visited by my monthly cycle. It's like I'm basically wearing like an adult diaper. Right. Just being exactly. angry by myself in my room.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the sound of the heater. I mean, yeah. That's so a lot of information that you packed in. Yeah, it's to that I, non-writing writing.
0: Well, I do a Linda Berry writing exercise with my students, and then I do it with myself. That's like a diary, but it's a diary where you are you're you're not putting your feelings into it because your feelings are just a little bit garbage. As far as like when you go back to look at a time, you know, like I was sad. You're like, well, that doesn't tell me anything. Yeah. That doesn't bring me into an image. So I try yeah. to like list the things that I saw that day and did that day. and something I overheard that day. And then I can yeah. draw one thing, but it helps me practice noticing and writing those tiny, tiny things.
1: Which is so important. And the feelings are going to be there.
0: Like yes. you don't have to write the
1: feelings. You never have to write the feelings because they're going to be there no matter what.
0: That's really valuable writing advice. It's just Like, try with as little as you possibly can and just see how that goes. Yeah. And then add more. But I always end up overwriting and then I have to white out. How do you write and share with the world terrible truths about people you love and don't want to hurt? My answer is I keep the focus on myself. So I remember that I'm here to tell my story from my perspective. I'm not here to hurt anyone else or make a slam book or use my platform to hurt anybody I'm just here to tell my story as it happened. And then for me, I disguise people. I'll make composite characters. I'll change their details because the emotional truth of my story is the thing that people are there to read. Not for me to be like, what an asshole or something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think disguising people is almost always better than... Uh, using someone's real name or the real details of their lives. Of course, sometimes there are times when you can't do that. Like if you're talking about a parent, uh, and the relationship, the fact that they're your parent is really important to the story as it so often is in memoir, um, And I think there are a couple of things, like you said, focusing on yourself. One piece of that is that uh, holding yourself accountable, like when you're remembering a situation so often, your feelings will dominate the narrative in your own head and you'll want to say this was their fault and this was about everything that they did. And something that is really valuable, even in the process of memoir writing and even for yourself as a writer, can be this process of reevaluating the situation, recognizing what your own actions were, turning yourself, in fact, into a character who is equally responsible for the narrative, really.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can't remember who said, like, if you end up the hero of your own story, you did it wrong. Like if you end up looking perfect and heroic, then you need to go back because you just did it wrong.
1: Yeah. Which is yeah. sometimes
0: hard because you'll write something and you're like, this is the story I tell people. And then you have to look back and be like, what part of this story makes me super uncomfortable that I don't want to write?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also it means questioning who you think you are because so often the things we want to write about are the things that feel really integral to who we've become. And those often can be challenges that we feel we've overcome and we need to see ourselves as heroic in overcoming those challenges, but it's okay to hold on to believing that you are the hero of your own life while writing a story in which you are not the hero. Mm -hmm. Like those two things can coexist.
0: (laughs) Where you are imperfect. Yeah. And those imperfections and vulnerabilities and things that make you even blush as you're writing it are the things that are going to form a bridge between you and your readers.
1: Yeah, that's so true.
0: That's so true. Yeah. I I mean,
1: it goes back to what we're talking about in terms of am I normal sex and body stuff, but also in everything, you know, sharing your weirdness makes the world a better place.
0: Yeah, and your otherness is your strength. So whether that is that you have, like, the weirdest fetish anyone's ever heard of of all time and that's charming or, like, you're very creative or people are like, wow, your mind works in a very interesting way. Yeah. Or whether it's like that you're gay and you're around a lot of people that aren't gay or whatever the thing yeah. is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That also you don't know who else has a thing that they feel weird about and maybe even the same thing as you. And the the more you shame yourself, the more you're shaming that person too. So you know, so if you try to think else. of the world as being made up. Oh, I can't hear you. Did you say
0: come out of your shame box?
1: Yeah. Come out of your shame box. Exactly. Yeah. Hi there. I was
0: wondering how you feel about the new ballot initiative for condoms and porn use.
1: Thank you. So for people who are not familiar, five years ago, there was a ballot initiative in Los Angeles County on the ballot. It was called Measure B and it was a condoms and porn. It was a mandate. It mandated condoms and porn, right. Um, it also mandated uh, a couple of things to like after it passed to make sure it could be enforced, like that the county could make uh, unannounced visits to porn sets and that kind of thing. So that measure passed, but many of the provisions, especially those enforcement provisions, were found uh, unconstitutional. So the, so the measure is in place in Los Angeles and actually a lot of the things that we talked about five years ago that were a lot of my fears about that passing, um, like pushing the industry underground did come to happen, which is, so it was uh, tied to permit permits. Um, in order to enforce it, the measure was tied to permitting. And after it passed, there was a 95% reduction in, adult film permits being issued in Los Angeles County.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I know because my coworkers and I still work in Los Angeles, that uh, they didn't stop shooting there. Some, some companies did, some companies moved production out to Nevada, uh, to Florida, but there's still lots of shoots being done there and being done illegally. And there's a couple of problems with that, right? One is that When anyone's working illegally, they have less recourse when anything bad happens on set. They don't feel empowered to go to any kind of authority and say, hey, I was harassed or God forbid I was injured in some way or another. People feel like because they were working illegally, they, um, you know, can't talk to cops or OSHA or whoever would need to be called in that situation. Um, So now a ballot initiative has been proposed for the entire state of California. And it's a much bigger beast than measure B uh, in LA. It basically what it does is it says that citizens of California who see a porn film in which condoms were not used for uh, penis penetration into any bodily orifice uh, can sue the producers or distributors of the movie and in fact um, are financially incentivized to sue because they will receive some money if the lawsuit is successful uh, some of the fees that are supposed to be paid by the producer so the the problem is the way it's worded actually producer can and most of the time will include the performers in the video because anyone who is, uh, who has a continued financial interest in the movie can be sued. So performers, uh, you know, we don't actually work in the old studio system, the like nineties version of making porn where you go to work and you get your paycheck and you go home and that's all the money you make off the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Most performers nowadays, do lots of different things since the invention of the internet. One is that they sell their own movies through affiliate programs. um, And so they continue to make a percentage off every movie they've made. Um, And the other is that they produce their own content. Most performers produce their own content these days, have their own websites, uh, sell their own clips on the internet. They film out of their house um, a lot of the time. They film with their partners a lot of the time. Married couples, for example, often film out of their own house, do webcam shows, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so also, this. if this law passes, it seems pretty easy to um, assume that it's going to attract fans who, if you file a lawsuit against a performer because you see them shooting without condoms, uh, you get all of their information. You get the information of where the film was shot. You get the performer's legal name. Uh, in cases where they filmed at their house, you get their home address. No,
0: no,
1: no. I, it's terrifying, honestly. It's terrifying.
0: So people can vote against this?
1: People can vote against it. Um, and I hope that people do. And I hope that people who are listening also, uh, will vote against it. I mean, the other thing that's really important to recognize is that these initiatives are called the like safer sex and adult film initiatives, but performers have a whole bunch of different safety measures that we take um, before performing. So condoms are actually the, in my belief and the belief of many of my coworkers, are not the most effective or the only effective way to protect ourselves on set. Some performers use condoms. Some performers don't want to. Um, One reason that performers don't want to use condoms is that they found that condoms cause something we call condom rash, uh, which is an irritation um, that can actually increase your chance of getting an STI if the condom breaks, for example, because if you have irritated skin, you have tiny holes in your skin. Um, (laughs) So, That's one reason that performers don't like to use them. We also have a very strict testing protocol, which was very strict five years ago. It's actually even stricter now. Uh, We use the top of the line HIV test. It's the same HIV test that's used in blood banks. Um, Most of the time, if you go to your doctor's office to get an HIV test, you have to wait three to six months for a positive result. This gives a positive result in seven to 10 days after an exposure. Um, and we get tested, uh, every 14 days or fewer.
0: So So, (laughs) so this bill isn't here to save you. You're not like, please, please, someone, please. You're like, we got this. We had this. Who's sponsoring this?
1: Um, the AIDS healthcare foundation is sponsoring this bill and they, are also the same ones who are opposed to PrEP. I mean, if anyone is following the latest advances in HIV care and prevention, um, you will know that uh, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation has many policies that are in direct opposition to the majority of AIDS and HIV nonprofits out there. I don't, uh, they've made condoms in porn their uh mission for I like 10 years and I don't know why
0: what, like what is the like what do they get out of that like what anyway.
1: I don't know and it really makes me sad they have a lot of money that they could spend on actually helping people who are at risk for HIV the you know, the protocol that I just mentioned in the testing protocol over 10 years, there has not been a HIV transmission on set use on a set that uses the testing protocol. So I, so we are not the people who need their attention.
0: There's a lot of people that do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: I'm sorry that that passed five years ago. Yeah, I
1: am too. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I hope that people will vote against it's proposition. 60 is the the one that's on the ballot in California. When Um, is that coming up? November. Okay. It'll be the same ballot as the presidential election, which is kind of crazy. I don't know what effect that will have, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but there should be a high voter turnout, which is interesting. But I mean, I have to tell you, I don't have a lot of faith. I'm really scared. I think, A lot of voters just read the title and nothing else. Yeah. But Mm. I mean, and if this, if I have any other thing to say about it, it's read the fine print on all of those initiatives because things that sound uh, benign might not be.
0: That could have a huge effect on so many people. Yeah. Okay. How can people find you or what, what do you want people to say? People are going to vote now on Prop 60 in California.
1: Yes. And um, people can find me on Twitter. People can email me. My uh, email address is on Twitter. At Miss Laura Lee mm-hmm. is my Twitter account. I formerly had another Twitter account that was X-rated. I don't use that one anymore. But So my Twitter account is not X-rated. I never put up uh, nudes or direct links to porn. But it is PG-13 for sure. Um <laughs> and uh, if people want to ask more advice uh, they should they can email me they should also um, check out the app it's free to download the taboo app with I don't think I said the name no. before of the magazine and app it's called taboo mm-hmm. um, and it's actually a little bit hard to find uh, it's only for iPhone right now or it's on medium um, the all the articles are on medium but you have to search for taboo sex ed. Great. If you just search taboo, you find a lot of other different things.
0: (laughs) I'm really happy that you're out there giving sex advice because I, I mean, I'm really appreciative for all the work that he does, but I feel like there need to be alternatives to Dan Savage, who is like the number one sex advisor. And I just feel like different perspectives and it's valuable.
1: I'm all about there being more and more perspectives in the world. That seems really important.
0: Well, thank yeah. you for coming on the podcast. Oh my God, what's your sign? Pisces. Great, great. I, you're I, all, I think you're the second Pisces we've had on the show. So.
1: Wow, only the second. That seems like not enough.
0: I know we need more. Well, I mean, we have like a lot of Aquarians and Capricorns. Yeah. But not as many yeah. Pisces as I would like. So. Thanks, okay. Thanks for coming on Sagittarian Matters.
1: I'm so happy
0: I could give the Pisces perspective today. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.